And today we discuss the aurora and the night sky on Behind the Shot. Hi, once again, welcome to Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion and all the stories and challenges that happen in between. I'm Steve Brazel. I've got a great guest lined up for you today, and I want to remind you that with any episode, you can go check out the show notes, a full blog post, and a gallery of the guests' images so that you get a better idea of what they do, and for that matter, all the links to all of their information, you can find that at BehindTheShot.tv. And of course, if you are a podcast listener, this podcast is available in multiple forms. Wherever you get your podcasts, whatever podcast app you use, you can get it in audio form. If your podcast app supports video, there is a separate feed for the video of Behind the Shot. And of course, the video also available up on our uh, YouTube channel. Before I bring my guest in today, there is one thing I want to remind you of at the time that we are recording this, which is late November 2019. Don Komorechka and I have done our first Behind the Shot critique show. That show is available on the Behind the Shot YouTube channel where Don and I sit down. If you don't know Don, by the way, he does the uh, Photo Geek Weekly podcast, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And periodically, I'm honored to be a guest on that show. He discusses four very geeky, very techie photography related topics each show. And uh, Don and I sit down for these shows and we critique people's images. If you want to participate, it's not hard to do. There is a behind the shot group on Flickr. So if you go sign up for a Flickr account, free account or pro account, doesn't matter. Join the group for behind the shot and submit your images to the group. We're all having fun over there and seeing a lot of great work, actually. But as an extra bonus, if you tag your image with BTS critique, all one word, and it's not a hashtag in the in the commenter caption, Flickr has their own tagging system. So just put BTS critique as a Flickr tag. We use those images that are both in the group and tagged to pull for future critique shows. And we are going to try and do one at least once a month and possibly even more often than that. And that brings us to today's guest. Now, today's guest, I met for the first time, I think it was in August in Las Vegas at Photoshop World Las Vegas for 2019. And as soon as I met Dave, I knew we were going to be friends. Dave Williams, how are you? Hey, good evening here. Anyway, yeah, I'm good. Yeah. Thanks. How are you doing, Rez? I'm very, very good. And yes, it is evening for you. So no, two things yeah. I got to thank you for. Number one, on. for staying up so late this time. And number two, there's always yeah, something to do. Number two is this is our second try at this show. Yeah. So yeah. your patience. I apologize. No, it's not your fault hey, at all, man. Not, your it, patience has been so much appreciated. We recorded this show once already. And just due to the internet wanting to be the internet and a bunch of yeah. technical things. We had so much lag that we've decided to do the show again. And so I appreciate Dave, Dave, uh, you being such a, a good sport and doing this again. I want to talk yeah, about it's great. You. It's great to be back. <laughs> yeah. And it's good to see you face to face again. So I mentioned yeah, that we met at Photoshop world. Yeah. The meeting at I Photoshop remember. world was this really weird happenstance where <laughs> I was standing there interviewing people and I'm, I'm not going to lie. I thought that I was just interviewing, you know, people that were attending Photoshop world, right? Paying customers right. to Photoshop world. And you were walking by with Sean Elizabeth, which by the way, yeah. if you don't know Sean Elizabeth, you need to go look up Sean Elizabeth. You need to know Sean Elizabeth. Right? Exactly. She's, 
she's got the the most awesome um like i don't know I, being a travel photographer i'm not very good at all the stuff where you get people involved but to me it's like really cool fashion portraits um really nice lighting and yeah she's a really good photographer check her out sean elizabeth yeah and, and by the way give the spelling for sean because it's the welsh spelling it's not how it's we spell welsh sean spelling. here in america no it's s-i-a-n okay so sean S-I-A-N elizabeth s-i-a-n elizabeth and if and- you look uh look that up on instagram or facebook you'll find her or if you look at me you'll find her somewhere tagged yeah and that's actually a good way to do it is just go look at the people that that dave is following on instagram and we'll give out his instagram stuff on screen and verbally so that you can get that because this is going to be a show about sean elizabeth now but seriously she has a really (laughs) unique vision in the type of photography that she does so you guys were walking down the hallway and i'm thinking Oh, here's two attendees to Photoshop World. Guys, can I do an interview? Mid-interview, I looked at Dave's badge and it said Dave Williams, Photoshop World instructor. And I went, that? You're Dave Williams. I know you. We just never met before. But that interview was really enlightening to me. Because when I said to you guys, what what are you looking forward to at Photoshop World? And a Photoshop and World instructor answer. said to me, I want to learn more about video. Video. And here I am trying to and figure out how this works. <laughs> and yeah. I think you also mentioned in design during the conversation too. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got a book out now under my belt and um, I still have no idea how InDesign works. I need to learn InDesign so bad. I really well, do. And InDesign is not one most people just pick up and run with really quickly. No, no. But that told me that even the instructors at Photoshop World, they Mm -hmm. show up at Photoshop World because they're hungry to learn too. So let's let's, let's cover you a little bit. You're a Kelby One instructor. You have classes on Kelby One. Yeah. So if you're a Kelby One member, go Google it. But I think I have a link in the blog post for your classes too. And you're a Photoshop World instructor, but... You're yeah. a travel photographer based out of London. And I say out of London because in the time that I've known you, you've been home like three days. <laughs> uh, yeah, sounds about right. Um, I just got back from, where did I just get back from? Canada. And in a couple of days time, uh, four days time from now, time of interview, I'll be in Norway and Finland, or specifically Lofoten and uh, Lapland. So, So yeah, it's cool. You being a travel photographer, you shoot something mm. that I truly, honestly, I don't do well at all. I mean, I really, honestly, just suck at landscape and nature photography. Oh, really? So what you okay. do to me is just fascinating. You're a photographer. <laughs> you're clearly an educator. You're a blogger. You're an author. And I want to yep. touch on your book because I've only had one where today we're going to talk about the Aurora in the night sky. And I've only had one Aurora shot on before from, from a guy by the name of Ken Sklute, a very well-known photographer, Mm -hmm. but you literally wrote the book, the complete Aurora guide for travel photographers. Tell me about the book for travelers and photographers. Yeah. So, um, the book's broken down into four sections. Um, and the fourth chapter is the photographer centric section. So that's the bit where you're going to learn how to shoot the Aurora um, and what to expect, what you need to deal with, how you need to set up. But the previous three chapters are all about the Aurora themselves. That's why it's for travelers and photographers. 
section one is all the stories, the folklore and the old um, the stories from Lapland and Inuit stories and Eskimo stories and Native American stories and all these stories from all over the world um, about what they thought the aurora was, why there were lights in the sky in the dark of winter and and what they put it down to, be it the tail of the Arctic fox whipping across the sky in Finland or the souls of their ancestors from northern Canada or even um, a, a walrus skull um, being used for a football in Greenland. There are so many different uh, versions of what the aurora borealis actually is. But then section two breaks it down to the science. What We now know what the Northern Lights are. And because we now know what they are, and that's fully explained in section two, section three goes on to explain, now we know what they are. How do we find and predict them? How do we know where they're going to appear in the night sky and when? And there is um, a combination of an art and a science to it. So as long as you've got the right conditions, a little bit of luck comes into play there, whether you've got the clouds, um, and the darkness that you need or the cloud free sky and the darkness that you need the science of the aurora itself what's happening up in space um that's all explained in there as well so yeah it's the literally the complete guide to the aurora and the book is available on amazon and in the blog post yeah. at behindtheshot.tv i will have a link for Perfect. that book so that Perfect, people can find people it they're gonna love it yeah. And, and you mentioned when we get into the shot, I want to touch on that science bit, because the, when we did the first take, right, hmm. we got into the, the northern lights versus the southern lights and the different, you know, yeah. what makes it. And you gave kind of this brief synopsis of what causes the aurora. So when we get into the shot, yeah. I want to make sure I remember to revisit that because okay. it was one of my favorite parts watching back the, the first attempt at this interview. Cool. You have a client list. That is interesting yeah. to me because okay. most people tend to have a client list that is, I'm looking for the words here, kind of in, in a certain genre, right? They're travel right. magazines or whatever. Yeah. You have a client list that goes from Time Magazine and Nat Geo and Lonely Planet to Forbes, Boeing, Huawei, and Microsoft and yeah. Shell and Triumph. Yeah. Yeah. Through for what you like do, isn't that small... kind of an interesting mix of clients? Absolutely. I love it. It's great. <laughs> it's great to see where these things go and, and what, what's done with them. And and it, it ranges from that all the way through to um, like small Japanese tourist companies marketing their, you know, trip to Lapland or their trip to Iceland um, and, and use for just press pieces in websites and magazines. And it's the, the this, this range of customers is huge um but that's part of what travel photography is to me it's it's a very hard genre to be in because travel photography isn't really a genre it's a collection of genres it's it's landscapes and portraits and um cityscapes and dark skies and food it's all of that put in together the the thing that binds it as travel photography to me is the fact that a good travel photo should make the person that's looking at it want to be there. And that's what makes it successful for Nat Geo and, um, you know, travel magazines and various other things. Um, so because of that, and because it's such a broad genre containing genres, it needs to reflect that in how it runs as a business. And so there are multiple streams of income from, stock to editorial to 
blogging to um, literally every, every stream of income, if down to Instagram influencing. Would you believe I'm an Instagram influencer? This guy, I would believe it because I know your work. But <laughs> there, there are so many streams of income that that come together to make the bigger picture. That, and that's that's what actually photography really is. That's actually fascinating to me because that's the best way I've I think I've ever heard. Actually, so much <laughs> to unpack in that. One, it's the best way I think I've ever heard travel photography discussed or described. Right. Travel photography is I not think. a genre in and of itself. Travel photography no. is environmental portraiture. It's yeah. waterscapes, it's landscapes, yeah. it's cityscapes, yeah. it's documentation, it's editorial, it's photojournalism. It's all these, it's all many stuff. of which are genres we already know. Yeah, but it all has that one thing in common. It's that, that it's the element of making the person looking at the picture want to be there. Which your triumph shot that you posted right after Photoshop world, you did a route 66 yeah. thing and you yeah. took a picture of two triumph motorcycles in yeah. front of the Milky way. Yeah. That made me want to be there. <laughs> I think everyone wants to be there. That's why I went. <laughs> well, so, and then there's, um, <laughs> there's that. So, right. um, so me and Mark heaps, another Photoshop world instructor, who's also just taught at Adobe max and just finished there. Um, he and I went to uh, Seligman, Arizona, uh, as our base for a few days while we rode Triumph Tigers up and down Route 66, taking awesome pictures and looking at cool things. And went to a town called Oatman, Arizona. Have you mm. ever heard of it? I know it well, actually. Yeah, full of donkeys. So weird. Anyway, um, yeah, we um, we pulled off the main highway onto Route 66, uh, and it suddenly just got so dark. And we stopped in this like dusty pullout on the side of the road as soon as we hit Route 66 uh, and saw that Milky Way. The, the core was just a bit too low, but the Milky Way was there. The road was there. And then the highway was passing through the back of that picture. So you've got the lights of the trucks passing by, which kind of defines um, a horizon in a moonless sky with the two bikes facing each like that facing um in the foreground lit with elytra which was set to something ridiculously low and pointed at the sky just so the light spilled onto them and for 25 seconds in came the light from the milky way and boom there's the picture it 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 really is the perfect commercial marketing shot for for a, <laughs> a, a brand like and they Triumph. haven't bought it can you believe that they haven't bought it <laughs> are you serious i'm serious oh yeah they should and, but also to unpack in that comment that you made was the multiple revenue stream. So there's a business mm. lesson in that, in mm. that, yes, there are genres in photography that are difficult to, to monetize, Yeah, but they're not impossible to monetize. If no. you look at, at a wider use model of yeah. the shots. Exactly. So to me, I, I, I've done lots of different things in photography and to me, the, I'm going to say easiest, but I, I use the term to describe the money rather than the art and the skill. The easiest is weddings and kids, because those are the photos that people know I have to pay a, a fair chunk for this, but I'm going to get that photo as a memory of my child or as a memory of my wedding for ever and ever. And there it is. And so people know they've got to pay for that. So there, there's a quite a simple stream of income there. When you move away from that model, when you're moving away from, um, the memory shots of family and friends and pets and kids and weddings, 
then you have to think outside the box as to what your income stream really is and what it's made up of and how to build it, monetize it, market it, and and really make it a business. Yeah, I, I completely yeah. agree. But but you've done well at it, and you've turned that right. into the Kelby One instructor. You've turned it into the Kelby yep. One classes. You've been on the mm-hmm. grid. You've got tutorials up at Tip Squirrel. Um, mm-hmm. So a lot of different things. So let's get into some questions about you and the 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 photographic end. What's okay. your go to camera body and lens? Desert Island thing. You can only it. have one. It, it's right. It's here somewhere. Um, of of what I own, it's right. So I I was shooting a D810 for years, and um, I recently got a, a Nikon Z6 Z6. Sorry, American Z6 and, uh, works for everywhere but here. Um, <laughs> I if I was to pick between the two at the moment, I'd stick with the D810 because I know my way around it without looking at anything. What about I, lens? I, you can. Uh, okay so i i carry around with me the the holy trinity the uh 14 to 24 24 to 70 70 to 200 all in f2.8 and my if i've got them all on me i'm usually quite inclined to pull out the 14 to 24 but if i had to just choose one forever and ever and ever and ever it'd be the 70 to 200 okay. because of how it forces you to compose properly rather than just flooding a scene like the 14 can where you're going to end up with a good composition in most cases, because you've got such a big scene to work from with a 70 to 200, you have to work that little bit harder to create the scene and create the composition. And you can use the depth and the compression of the lens to help you do that as well. You're 70 to 200 Nick on D810. There's your answer. Boom. Okay. That works. And what, what apps do you use? That you yeah. can't live without, because that's the big thing now. Is everybody has an app that they've got to have? What's your go-to app? Instagram. I mean, like the app for <laughs> okay. photography for you making photos. Though. I get it, but yeah, Instagram. I'm with so, you. Um, because you're an influencer. It, oh yeah, did I potentially influence you there to get Instagram? Yes. Um, 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 um. Okay, so when it comes to composing or planning a shot which I so often need to do because when I go away, I've got limited number of sunrises and sunsets in a specific location. I need to maximize it. I need to know what's going to happen when, how, and where the app that helps me do that is photo pills. And I am well aware that everyone's favorite photography app is photo pills. So I'd want to say something else, but it, it, it's photo pills. Yeah. It helps it's, so much is, with planning sunrise, sunsets, golden hours, twilights. It's just, it's a really helpful app. It's everything. And by the way, not a free app, but well worth every penny of it. So no, I can't remember how much it is. I think it's like maybe 10 pounds tops, $10 tops. Yeah. Which to some people's expensive, but you know, keep in for, mind for what it you, does is bargain. You used, we used to pay a lot for apps. Everybody thinks app yeah. store prices now, but in the day, yeah, <laughs> that was crazy cheap. So let's get into the shot. Now this, this shot we're going to talk about today. I mentioned it's the Aurora and the nighttime sky and, and yeah. one of the things that made me want to talk about this image, and there's a ton of things that made me want to talk about this image, but <laughs> one of the things is the way that it has three subjects, main subjects, not just like mm-hmm. foreground, midground, background. There are three primary subjects <laughs> in one shot. The waterfall is clearly easily a main subject. The aurora mm-hmm. is clearly easily a main subject. The night sky is clearly, again, 
uh, main subject. So for mm-hmm. this shot, first of all, where is this? So um, it's a waterfall called Kerkjefellsfoss in Iceland. Bless you. On, on the, you're, <laughs> I was going to say you're welcome. I don't know. <laughs> That's not right. Um, yeah, Kerkjefellsfoss. It's, it's um, on the the western peninsula of Iceland, the bit that sticks out to the west, and it's, um, yeah, it's Kerkjefellsfoss. So uh, let's, let's throw down some Icelandic here. So um, Kerkjefell, Kirk is church. Fell is like a hill, a small mountain, and a foss is a waterfall. So that is the small hill of the church waterfall. Because if you turn around from that spot that I'm standing in, it's, uh, I don't know if you watch Game of Thrones, but there's, um, I don't, but there's apparently the uh, the mountain that's shaped like an arrowhead. Well, that's that's right there. That's Kerkifel. The mountain is called Kerkifel, and that's the waterfall associated to it. So if you're facing the waterfall, directly behind you is the Arrowhead Mountain. Just turn around. It's right there. Okay. So for those Mm -hmm. on an audio feed, because about half the people watch the video and about half the people watch the audio, and based on the concept of the show, audio is a little more difficult because Mm -hmm. you kind of need to know what this image looks like. You can go see this image at BehindTheShot.tv, but I'm going to try and describe it to you. It is a slow shutter. I don't even want to say long exposure, but it's a slow shutter uh, hmm. waterfall shot. You've got hmm. a little bit of foreground land. You've got water. You've got a long exposure waterfall with the nice soft blended water, but yet there's a slight hint of, you know, lighting across the front of the mountain. So you can see detail in the mountain, in the water and, and in the hills right behind that is this gorgeous Aurora. I've seen Aurora shots. Actually, I don't like, cause I don't think that they, I don't think that the, the, the pattern for lack of a better phrase, mm-hmm. of the aurora, fit the composition of the shot. But the way this is almost yeah. radiating out from right over the main waterfall, and then yeah. above that, you've got night sky. Three of them, all in one, and colorful beyond belief. So this was shot with a Z6 in the 14 to 24. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was the exposure on this? It, I want to say it's about 20 seconds. Okay. And this would have been, uh, actually, you know what? I've got EXIF data. Uh, 14 okay, millimeters, let me guess, let me ISO 9000. Yeah. So that's the beautiful thing about this cool sensor on this Nikon Z6. It, it's really good at dealing with um, high ISO and not creating any um, noise or like there's barely a bad pixel in it in terms of noise. I'm not talking about artistically, but in terms At of 9, noise, it's, it's clean. I loved wow. it. If, so tell, tell me a little reason, bit if, about this. How, how did you get this? To explain this shot to me. Okay. So I was on a um, five-day trip to Iceland, and that was the night before the morning I flew home. And of the five days I was in Iceland on this trip, there was a geomagnetic storm for four of them, one of them, the entire country was covered in a blanket of thick cloud. I maximized on the other three nights to get as many images as I could of the Northern Lights because I love seeing them. It's it's this, it's this weird thing. If you've never seen the Northern Lights, um, you, you you need to see it to understand. But it just it sort of um, captivates your body and kind of leaves you like numb for a second when you see what nature can do in the sky above you. And 
I, I love that feeling and that's why I keep going. That's why I'm going to Norway and Finland in a couple of days to get it again. So anyway, that let, was let me, let me interrupt you on that home. for a second. Cause you just said something interesting. The, the first Aurora shot that I had with Ken Sklute, which was like episode number mm-hmm. three, mm-hmm. he could not see it with his eye. Okay. But you could see this with your eye. Yeah. Sometimes you can't see it with your eye and the camera can pick it up. Sometimes you get, green sometimes you get blue red purple it all depends on the gases that are um cause that are, that are not causing that are involved in the reaction in the ionosphere the upper atmosphere and sometimes you don't get a color associated to it because it's just not powerful enough and so you can see it but it looks gray like a cloud almost Interesting. Sometimes That's it's really... so faint that you can't see it with your eye unless you like, if you look at anything like the back of your camera or a phone screen, you're not going to see it because your eyes aren't going to adjust. So you need to get those screens off and let your eyes adjust to the darkness. But yeah, it, it all depends on how strong it is and how strong it is depends on the solar wind and the solar wind depends on what's going on on the sun. It's all because of the sun. So we before we finish idea. your story of capturing this... <laughs> Yeah, it's a good time to hit that fact that you also said northern lights, as opposed yes. to southern lights. And in the, in the yes. first show that we recorded for this, you kind of gave—I think you did it in like two minutes or something like that—the the the quick version of what the mm-hmm. aurora is. So, yeah, explain this to the people like me that have no clue what I what I'm even looking at technically. Okay, you ready? Set the timer. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so. On Earth, we have, do I have anything round? Mm, not particularly round, right. On okay, Earth- I'm resetting the timer now. Okay, ready and go. <laughs> Heck yeah. So on Earth, we've got two poles, a North Pole and a South Pole. And there is a, a, a flow of energy, um, the magnetic field that goes, arcs out from one to the other. And it pulls things in at the poles and pushes them away at the edges. So over on the sun, the sun isn't a massive land like our our Earth is. The Earth's got a big, heavy, dense iron core, and that's what causes that magnetic field. And we've got this crust, and so everything's nice and stable. We know we've got tectonic plates. We know they move. We know the water moves, but it doesn't move enough to affect the magnetic field much, but that's another point. On the sun, the sun is a ball of gas. It's helium. Um, and because it doesn't have that core, like we have the iron core, it doesn't have a magnetic field, but it does have electrical and magnetic energy. And therefore it doesn't have any poles, but it does have these energy fields. So rather than having a North and a South pole, two poles that oppose each other, it's got loads of different magnetic lines all over the surface of it, like loads and loads of them. So you'll have a positive to a negative to a positive to a negative there one there and one there and one there and they're all over the surface and they um, build up the energy as as the sun reacts and the sun is basically a big nuclear reactor that's constantly going off and it's been going off for a long 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 time as these reactions occur and the um, helium is colliding and is, is it's it's fissioning basically it's nuclear fission the energy that's released and in the form of magnetic energy is creating arcs. And these arcs push away from the surface because they're resisting and pushing away from the positive to the negative, et cetera, et cetera. And it creates arcs 
which creates underneath them sunspots, which are the dark areas on the sun when you look at those pictures that NASA shows us. And you see these arcs, which are solar flares. They push off into space, and when there's enough energy in there um, that it's all built up, it sort of pings like a rubber band, and it flies off into space. And obviously, the sun's here and we're here, and it could go that way or over that way, but sometimes it comes to us. When it comes to us, we've got masses and masses of helium plasma and plasma is like halfway between uh, a gas and a liquid it's another state of matter that plasma flies through space at ridiculous speeds like thousands of of miles per second fly through space and it yeah and the um, energy that's come that comes with it remains with it it doesn't sort of dissipate the energy stays with that plasma it hits the earth and that's where this line this field comes in so it comes in here and it's repelled by that line on the side and goes around to the top and to the bottom and it usually goes past it gets deflected and that bit that hangs out the back is called the magneto tail that bit is important because the energy that builds up there um sort of You've got gravity pulling that way, you've got it moving that way, and at some point there, it's going to sit suspended in space. Back to that. The stuff that's coming in north and south is flying into our ionosphere and smashing into the particles in our atmosphere. So you've got helium plasma hitting oxygen and hydrogen and nitrogen and everything else that's up there. When it does that, it creates um, a reaction, and that reaction to release its energy comes out in the form of light. And depending on the particle it hits, that depends on what color the aurora is. Okay. Oxygen is green. Hydrogen is red. When <laughs> that magneto tail builds up enough energy, when we come back to that, it snaps again, like the rubber band on the on the sun flare, the planet on. Uh, the surface of, of the sun, that magnetosphere can, magneto tail can snap back and that plasma that's suspended behind us can come flying back to earth. And that is usually a lot denser and a lot more powerful. And that can create a solar storm. That's what a solar storm is versus a solar wind. So that stuff that comes back at us from the magneto tail snapping, that's a geomagnetic storm, which is rated G1, G2, G3, G4. Whereas the regular stuff is rated on the KP scale, which is a latitudinally based scale based on the previous three hours anywhere in the world, rated on the K index, K1 or KP1, KP2, KP3, etc., etc. When you get to KP5, that's when you start getting the G1 level geomagnetic storm. And the time? Uh, <laughs> five minutes. Oh, cool. That's not bad. So I think. I sort of slowed down a little bit and got a bit more in there this time, but that's uh, good though because that's people basically that's what the northern lights are. There. It's let's let's break it right the way back down. Plasma flies off from the sun, comes and hits particles in our atmosphere, causes a reaction. The reaction is light, and light is the northern lights. And based on the 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 element that's <laughs> being utilized in that particular case, yep. that's the color that you get. Yep. Okay, so. Yeah, exactly. Now that everybody knows what you're looking at, because we all understand the yes. night sky and most <laughs> of us understand what a waterfall is. So yeah. now we understand the color in between. Yeah. Finish your story about how you got this. How did, right. So um, that was the last night. And my flight from Keflavik back to London was something like 8 a.m. And so I drove from the northeast of, of Iceland, the northeast of the country, and I 
didn't book accommodation that night. I decided, no, it's going to be a cool solar storm. I'm going to drive through the night. I'm going to stop somewhere, take my pictures, and then just carry on driving through the night to the airport, which was, if I did it in a straight line, it would have been like five, five and a half hours. So I broke it up by going to Kirkjafelsfoss. And um, I got there at about midnight, half past. And for the previous hour and a half, I was watching while driving through um, Western Iceland and, and the northwest of the country around the Kringvegur, the ring road. I was just watching the sky explode with light and color because of this geomagnetic storm. And my goal, as it had been on another trip, was to get there to that. <laughs> that wasn't the shot I wanted. Was to get to that mountain and waterfall and shoot the, the arrowhead together. Mountain. Yeah, Kirkjafell. Um. But when I got there, I was having driven all that time in the middle of the night. I was quite annoyed at what was going on because it was quite a popular spot. So it's quite a fa if if you look at Icelandic northern light shots or any Icelandic sort of tourist board shots, you're gonna see that mountain Kirkjufell, right? And um, it's not a unique shot, but I wanted it. That was just me being selfish. I just I I wanted that shot. Um, I got it. So I have the shot um, of Kirkjafell and as the background with the northern lights behind with the waterfall as the foreground. But to get to the spot to take that picture, you have to walk round the top of the waterfall, up a slope, towards the, um, towards the mountain, and between the mountain and the waterfall, there's a, a road. And so people park their cars there and they walk up that slope towards where I was standing. And then around the top of the waterfall in the darkness with flashlights. And so they were lighting up light trails all the way along this path, all the way through my scene. And I was just getting annoyed at what was going on. And I was watching the sky and I was trying to enjoy it, but I was getting irritated <laughs> because of what was going on with all these flashlights everywhere. And I thought about what else I could do. So I had the Northern Lights spiraling around the top of the mountain and it looked really cool, but I, it wasn't unique. It wasn't going to stand out. It was it was a cool shot, but it was like standard. People, Other people have it. And I looked at every single camera. There were maybe 20 cameras there. Every single camera was facing that mountain from the top of the waterfall because that's where the path is. That's where the trail is. And, and that's what people want to see, just like I did. So what I did instead is I pulled out my, um, I had a Lytra Pro, and I had my camera on the tripod, and I pulled everything out so I could see where I was going, and I got right down at the bottom of that waterfall where it kinks off as it flows down the river. It kinks off, and there's just enough of a gap that you can get in there and be at the face of the waterfall. Um, the northern lights were predominantly behind me, but the, the way they were flying across the sky put them right in that gap in the, in the shot above the waterfall at the edge of that mountain and sort of made a leading line right there with the top of the mountain as another and the waterfall as another, bringing your attention in from almost every angle to there. So I thought that's pretty cool. And then Steve had a question. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking now that you just described that, yeah. You're at the foot of the waterfall. You said, "How far away from the waterfall are you here?" Like, like if you were oh. to walk straight to that waterfall, how far is that? 
15 steps if I could walk on water. Wow. Really See, close. and it's that 14 millimeter that yeah, makes it feel it so that. much more wider. But one of the things exactly. I thought when I first saw this shot was if you were a cinematographer, if you were mm-hmm. a lighting director, something like that, yeah. and you were trying to, you know, whiteboard this this scene for Game of Thrones or whatever, right? A movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you, this is how you would put the Northern Lights in combination with the night sky, in combination yeah. with with the waterfalls. The, the mm-hmm. for those of you that are listening, really do go look at this shot because from a compositional point of view, when you do a landscape like this, obviously, generally you want to avoid you know horizon lines dead center, and you want to avoid too much water if it's not part of the story, and too much sky if it's not part of the story. Mm-hmm. Here, because there's the three subjects, that's really touchy. How much? you leave of each. And obviously you're going to want more of the night sky to see the stars above. You're going to want to be able to leave the Aurora in, but have the waterfall, but the waterfall makes no sense without the right amount of water to make it feel like there's somewhere the water's going. And your, Mm -hmm. your, your composition here is perfect amount of water. You didn't, many people I think would have gone too much sky and lost the power Mm. of the waterfall itself. Yeah. There's you, no blown highlights here. Somehow it's it's not going to work, is it? No, no, it if won't. You, yeah. Um it really honestly even the, the the there's one like like left side near the top, one brighter star. Everything yeah. in here is so well laid out. Think, the waterfalls I might there's be wrong, like but I think that one's a planet. My housemate's a bit of a geek. He's got a telescope downstairs and I think that's Mars. I might be wrong, but I think that's Mars. Which which could make sense, but the waterfalls, so the main big waterfall is almost dead center, and then they trail yes. off frame left, cam- camera left, yep. uh, to yep. other ones. The right-hand side is just land so that it's it's balanced. You have more of the greenish lights on the, the right. the left of the waterfall, do you see there's a second layer, a second waterfall behind up in the distance? Yes. You see that? Yeah. It's cool, huh? <laughs> <laughs> there's it, there's so much here. The green lights on the right balance the mountain that doesn't have as much green light on the left. Yeah, yeah. But at this exposure, you could have easily blown out highlights on that oh, water. Yeah. Oh yeah. So I've I've lit that. Um, so um, the 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 human eye is sort of pre-programmed to look at the brightest thing, and that's where our eyes first fall. So I needed to weigh up um, how much light I put in versus how much light was already there caused by the Aurora and also how much the Aurora was spilling onto that landscape. Because obviously it's it's a, it's a source of light. The Aurora is a source of light. And depending on how strong it is, depends on how light the, the landscape is lit up, how much light is cast upon the landscape. And um, so I had to weigh that up. But also consider, well, if we're going to look at the brightest thing, the way we find the brightest thing with our eye is with looking at the contrast of the image. And so I need to use the contrast to put your eye where I want it to be. And all of that's happening in the dark um, without being able to see much on my screen. So it relies on taking a shot, guessing, making adjustments, taking another shot. Am I in the right place yet? Have I got the right amount of light yet? And various tests and things like that. But then when it came to lighting up that waterfall, I needed to give it enough light that it it was clearly a, a, a focus point, but not too much light that it blew out in the highlights 
or clipped in some way. But Which also, would have hurt the shot. Exactly. But also enough consistent light for a, a long enough duration that it made it a long exposure and gave it silky smooth flow. Which, if you're interested, was the lowest possible setting on that Lytra Pro that I could possibly get with my hand, like holding it, my hand in front of it so that the light goes up into the air and sort of spills onto the waterfall through like the water and the moisture and the whatever's going on in the air around me that just allowed the light to spill onto there just to bathe it in such insanely gentle light that over that 20 second odd exposure gave it that long exposure look and illuminated it but didn't pull focus from the sky but how did you was, calculate yeah. that exposure though i mean adding light how did you know what exposure to go at so i it's trial and error there's no maths to it in my case I'm, i mean there is maths to it but in my case it's not it's trial and error i know that i can't go above about 25 seconds in most cases for those wide lenses because of star trails i don't want to get so star the stars won't the be images. dots they'll be lines indeed um and then i also know that i need to get a long enough exposure to absorb that light from the northern lights when it's not so bright and if it's really bright i can slow it down or i can ramp the iso if it's not very um intense i just i just know from practice and experience what to do with that when it came to using the artificial light put my own light into the scene that's the bit that became tricky and again it's from trial and error that i know well it it, it needs to be such a tiny amount of light to paint that scene that like if I, even if I just give it a flash, it's just going to clip. It's going to be insane. It's just going to be white. So I needed to just give it that gentlest little bathing of light to get it to do what I wanted to do. It's, it's literally, so, yeah. it's, it's the, you, you've got to see this picture because it's not just the water <laughs> that could have blown out, but the, the, the feather of light on the hillside itself is just so spot on. When you get this back on the computer, and you got to process this. Yeah. Is there anything magic that you do for processing a shot like this? Um, night skies and Milky Ways, you mean? Yeah, just like this it's, shot, for example. Um, generally, I um, want to bring the shadows down a tiny bit and bring the highlights up a tiny bit to give it some emphasis or go into the curves and create um, uh, an S curve. So you bring... Which way am I on your screen? You, for the top end, you bring the third quarter up, and the bottom end, you bring the first quarter down a bit, and then you can pull in the uh, white and black points to give it the black and the white that you want with the contrast that you want. And it's that contrast that helps the night sky really pop, in particular the northern lights and the Milky Way. What about that like saturation vibrance? I've often been criticized for my use of over vibrant images. I don't really do anything to the saturation slider. Um, I will move into the um, targeted um, adjustments, the hue, saturation, luminance, and target the specific colors I want. Um, when it comes to the Northern Lights, you can, if, if you've got some red and some purple in there but with predominantly green, you can target that red and that purple to make them pop and make them stand out by sliding, simply sliding up the brightness and or the saturation of those specific colors. Um, but when it comes to the, the Northern Lights overall, 
the more you get right in camera, the easier it'll be because the more you mess with it, you've got less margin of error than you would have for like a daytime scene. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a tricky one, but it's the, the generic answer, which is right in most cases is give it an S curve. It will make it pop. Give it some, um, contrast. So curves. Yeah. Jump into curves. And, and I (laughs) see for me, your shots have contrast in two ways. They do have yeah. contrast on a luminance level, zero to mm-hmm. 255, but they have contrast on a color level. And I, I've explained to people before that I'm colorblind. I mean, that doesn't mean I don't see color. It means I see color different mm. than other people mm. in, in some areas, reds and greens, for example. And I, I think, I mean, I don't know for sure, but I think I compensate for that by going for contrast in a picture. Well, mm-hmm. you bring contrast in color as well as mm-hmm. contrast and luminance. And that's mm. what I think makes your pictures in, inviting. That's, that's what's going on with the HSL tabs and sliders. It's it, it's giving that contrast in the color rather than just using the contrast in, in the scene and using the contrast slider. I'm not really a fan of the contrast slider and what it does itself. You need to think about what kind of a contrast you're going for and do it specifically, deliberately um, to your image. In, instead of global, yeah, do more, more yeah. focused stuff. If you were to give one tip for either Mm. Aurora night sky, somebody that goes out and tries to shoot night sky or Aurora, what's the one tip that you would give them to help them get started? Um, If you're going to go shoot the Aurora, I'll fall back to what I said earlier. And it's, it's a captivating, magical, natural um, phenomenon. And you need to enjoy it because people spend their lives with the Northern Lights on their bucket list, wanting and wishing to see it. And they might travel to, I don't know, Iceland, Norway, and and not get the right weather and not have the confidence to go and find the right weather and therefore not see it. So it remains on their bucket list. So if you see the Northern Lights, enjoy the experience. It's fantastic. In terms of photographing it, think of it... um, Okay, so the Northern Lights generally not always sometimes they're pretty static but generally they're moving they're moving wildly across the sky they're changing position you've got a stream coming in over here and then suddenly it jumps over here or then it spills out and shrinks in and there's movement there's quite a lot of movement sometimes going on and when you're shooting a night sky you're using a long exposure or a longer exposure than normal to bring in that light through the um, barrel of the lens to hit the sensor to make sure you get your decent image. You can think of the Northern Lights as a waterfall when it comes to the settings you're using. Because they're moving and because it's a long exposure, if you want to capture the movement of the Northern Lights and go for a longer exposure, play off your exposure triad against your shutter speed to to really get that milky silky smooth movement or if you want to freeze it much like you do when you want to freeze the water that's falling and cascading over a waterfall if you make it a faster shutter speed so that you get those um like the gaps in between the lights and whatever else is going on up there in the sky um much like you would with a waterfall so if you think of it as a waterfall and slow it down and speed it up to play with what's happening with the movement that's in the sky above your head that's that's probably the best tip to give to give um creative images rather than just sort of 
evidence images were like right. I, I saw the northern lights here's a picture to prove it here's a snapshot yeah think outside the box and get something creative to make people go wow that's cool so as we've been talking i've been putting up mm. your lower thirds uh with your website okay. and your social media links in it but i want to make sure before we close out uh that first of all i say thank you very much because again we did this twice and i appreciate your patience on that but your work it's been great your work is just so beautiful. You process <laughs> images in a way that I just, that, that really attach, you know, that I can attach to. And I, I dig that. Your, I, so Dave kind. Williams. Just, thank you. Everywhere. Right? Yeah. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, idavewilliams.com. If you look for idavewilliams, you'll find me. Makes it easier. So follow yeah. him on social media. Check out his website, check out his tutorials on uh, on uh, Tip Squirrel, and uh, check him out also, again, if you're a Kelby One member, go check him out on the Kelby One classes, check him out next Photoshop world that he's at, and Dave Williams, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much. You've said such kind things. It's really nice. <laughs> I say as what I, I, you know. I hit the goal and I made you want to be there, so it worked. And that's really it, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> it's just... It's the, what I want to do with concert shots. I want to make people go, yeah. oh, I wish I'd seen that or I feel like I yeah. have. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So Dave Williams, idavewilliams.com, idavewilliams on every social media. Thank you so That's much, me. man. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So there's Dave Williams, Photoshop World, Kelby One, idavewilliams.com. Check him out everywhere that you can. Before we close out, a couple of things to let you know about. First of all, just a reminder, if you are not a Flickr member, <clears throat> go sign up at Flickr. You can do a free account. You can do a pro account. It does not matter. And then join our group. Behind the Shot is the name of the group. Once you join the Behind the Shot group, uh, you can then submit images to that group. And we're just having fun seeing a lot of great work, but we've got something else in there as well. If you tag it with BTS Critique, uh, Don Komarechka of Photo Geek Weekly Podcast, well-known macro photographer, genius, actually, I would argue, macro photographer, uh, and I are doing, and I don't know why I'm in this mix, but we're doing these critique shows, and they are on the Behind the Shot YouTube channel. We've done one at the time of this recording. By the time this episode airs, there'll probably be two of them up there on YouTube. And again, if you want to participate, if you want your image critiqued, Tag it with BTS Critique, put it in that group over on Flickr, and we'll get to it. And other than that, to everybody, thank you as always for watching. Lately, I've gotten some great comments on iTunes. And to those of you that have taken the time to do a star rating, to do a comment, I can't say thank you enough. It helps with dis discoverability, and I really, really do appreciate it. For that matter, those of you that just reach out to me on social media and uh, make comments or give feedback. I really, really do appreciate it. This is Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers. I'm Steve Brazel, and we'll see you on the next show.